The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Hello and welcome to Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me as always is His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of Finger to the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. As always, I know you'd like to start our shows with a prayer, so I'll let you do that before I read our announcement. Very good. Today's show is being recorded on the 28th of March, the feast day of uh, St. John Capistrano. And may I note as well, today is the birthday of our distinguished host, Stephen Heiner, and we wish him a very happy 35th birthday. We all promise our, our prayers, continued health, and God's blessing in this very important apostolate. Uh, Stephen, had you been born in the old, old days, uh, you would have been named not Stephen, which is, after all, a glorious name, the first martyr. You would have been named John Capistrano. And in any case, you certainly are, as are we all, under the protection of of this very great saint. We're going to talk about the twilight, the decline of the Church in the... um, in the 14th and 15th centuries today, but let's start with a saint from that era who lived in the first half of the uh, 15th century, who was such a glorious light for the Catholic Church and put this uh, program under his patronage. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. St. John Capistrano, zealous for the faith, persecutor of heretics, light of virtues, exterminator of Turks, O great preacher, teacher of the peoples, John, most faithful of the Friars Minor, be our defender now from the kingdom of the blessed. Pray for us, St. John Capistrano, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. O God, who has marvelously raised up thy church by the merits and doctrine of blessed John, and through him made thy faithful triumph over the perfidious tyranny, by the power of the most holy name of Jesus, grant we beseech thee that prevailing over our enemies by his intercession on earth, we may merit to be rewarded with him in heaven. Through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name amen. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. This is episode three of Root of the Rock. Well, Your Excellency, we've got... Uh, quite another group of years to cover today. Our, our stated purpose is to cover the years 1274 to 1517, but in doing that, we're going to have to move back and forth between time periods. And what would you like to start us with today? Well, a consideration that in, in today's program, we really are going to uncover the root of the rot, and of course, it's slimy and malodorous, so prepare yourself for that. We'll see, sort of sliding in, um, Satan-like on its belly, 
the, the serpent of the isms into the church and into Christendom. We'll see laicism, secularism, naturalism, nominalism, very important, as well as the forerunners of Anglicanism, Gallicanism, evolutionism, and if we can ismize Teilhard de Chardin, he would be the last one I'd like to mention. And all of this, all of this rot is fed by politics and power, as always, with uh, with any coming together of men and power politics, you'd have to say, too, I'm sure. Money, even the matter of disease, because we have to look at um, uh, the great plague of the Black Death and ambition, of course, and ignorance and uh, an utter lack of principles. Today, I think in these two centuries, Stephen, what we want to do is we want to pass from a consideration of the unthinkable, which actually happened, to finally a proposition of the unknowable, and then let us not fall into the final despair, but many did during the time of the, of the, of the Black Death. This final despair, people began to think, not in terms of eternity, but just in terms of this life or the pleasure of the moment or of the hour, because they could drop dead at any time of the plague. So finally, it's this idea of, well, sort of 20th century existential angst. What does it really matter? It makes no difference. Uh, as my friend Jimmy in Kentucky used to say, besides, it don't make no difference. So uh, that's um, a little bit of an introduction to what we would like to speak about today, Stephen. And let's start with uh, what led us to the unthinkable. And of all things, isn't this topical enough to date, uh, we have to start with our consideration of what happened to Western Christendom in Crimea, in Crimea, because it was in Crimea some seven centuries before the era, which is our topic today, that uh, the last pope to die as a martyr, St. Martin I, in the year 644, died. He died in Crimea of mistreatment from the Greek emperor, Constans II. Since then, since 654, until now this uh, rather unhappy uh, 14th century, no one had ever touched a pope. If with all the, all the problems and all of the difficulties, and indeed all the corruption of the papacy during a true kind of a dark ages, no one had ever touched a pope. But now we will see the misnamed Philippe Le Beau, Philip the Fair, French king, actually send his lieutenants to lay hands on the Holy Father over who was Boniface VIII, the great Boniface VIII, over the question of taxes, money, uh, church liberty, and the same kind of a conflict, of course, was going on in um, in England at that time. So that's a little bit of our of our mise en scène today. That's uh, the, the scene that, that we're looking at. Uh, Bishop Sanborn notes in his writings on the root of the rot that uh, Philip the Fair was a man of very high pride. He was... Uh, Vigorous man and and highly competent for government. This was bad because he used all of his natural talents. Um, unlike Saint Louis the King, Louis the Ninth, his grandfather, he used all of his natural talents against the Catholic Church. So first of all, it was it was a money it was a money pressure kind of a thing, um, in which he wanted to um, exert from the church and from the clergy taxes without 
the permission of the Pope in Rome. A uh, little sidebar here, the, the laity in, in, during all of these Middle Ages, the laity has, has always, um, uh, the, the, the wealthy or wannabe wealthy laity, have always um, been covetous of the, of the clergy's wealth or supposed wealth. Um, and that set up the scene for many a conflict throughout history. But I think we have to say that the, from, the, from the very outset, the money of the church, lands in particular, because lands were wealth, the money of the church were the poor man's bank. The money of the church was um, the college fund, as it were, or the tuition money for the poor, the education of the poor. And it was also the food pantry. It was also, it was also the, the way in which the, the poor would be fed, especially in time of famine or some very great need. So that when these great men, in order to uh, pursue their perfectly useless wars, as they do all throughout history, when they... Uh, uh, got covetous for the, the wealth of the church. Uh, what they really were doing is attacking the poor because the Catholic Church, let us remember that during the ages of Christendom, is the great defender of the poor. Um, so there's a, there's a conflict. Uh, the Pope uh, uh, reacts uh, to, this, uh, to this usurping of the church's property and the church's wealth by excommunicating anyone who dares to do such a thing. Philip, in turn, is enraged. He reacts against uh, the papal decree. There's a little bit of a little bit of a standoff for a while, and then some and interesting something diplomatic occurs. That is to say that um, Philip uh, is uh, is is moved by the fact that the that the Pope, who who truly loves who truly loves the eldest daughter of the church, he loves France. He says. He goes so far as to say, if I had, if France really needed it, and if I had to, I would sell the chalices and the crosses of the churches to defend the eldest daughter. But the church doesn't really need Philip to be fighting against his English cousins, who are actually of Norman blood anyway. Uh, that's, that's just a worldly war. You don't need to be doing that. But there's a bit of a truce when he canonizes uh, the great Louis IX of France. Uh, it's a little bit like, um, the, the slight um, diplomatic compromise and melting of conflict when St. Pius X beatified uh, Joan of Arc. But it didn't last. These things never last. And it, and it didn't last um, very long. And, and things grew even worse, far, far worse than they had been before. Uh, there's a lot of physical violence against the Pope and his representatives, which, as I say, for the first time in seven centuries, is now um, taking place. The papal legate makes the decision, trying to, uh, the Pope is trying to negotiate um, uh, some sort of a compromise between the French and the English. The papal, the papal legate, who happens to be an English bishop, makes the decision in favor of the English, and, the, and Philip is furious. He has his brother, the prince, snatch the decision from the hands of the legate and uh, throw it into the fire. That sort of thing, that uh, profound disrespect, you would never have seen that before. Uh, Philip calls an assembly of the French clergy, which reminds one of the assembly of the English clergy centuries later with Henry VIII, saying that he wants them to agree, and they do, essentially. They agree that uh, uh, Philip is the... Um, is sub, as, as King of France, Philip is subject to no sovereign but to God. 
the Holy Father calls this verba delirantis filia, the words of an insane daughter. He can't believe that the bishops subscribe to that. And his response to that is the bull, the glorious papal bull, about which we all of us in America at least have heard, unam sanctam. But this... Uh, I want to pause here, Steve, and talk about this for a moment because I think it's, it's significant. It's um, Unam Sanctum of Boniface is more than a Fenite screed or a Fenite proof text. Let's look at the context of it, which the Holy Father declares that it is necessary. At the very end, he says, he, he declares, he pronounces, he defines that every human being is, is subject to the Roman pontiff of necessity, for salvation. That's how it ends, and it's an answer then to this bold usurpation of the uh, of, of the French king, in which he declares himself to be exempt from any sort of papal power or judgment. But before he gets to that, what is very interesting for us to consider is how how beautifully and how well, how magisterially, the Holy Father um, compares and lays out the the. the the um, the complementary orders in Christianity. The Scripture teaches, as writes the Pope, that um, to the Church are given two swords: the spiritual and the temporal. The first, the spiritual, is to be used by, underlined by the Church, and the second, the temporal, is to be used for the Church. The former is placed in the hands of the priest. The latter is entrusted to kings. Voila, there you have it. It's very, very beautiful laying out in just a few succinct phrases exactly what the church-state relationship ought to be. Uh, and as it was under, under uh, Philip's uh, grandfather in France, and as has been very, very rarely throughout human history. One of these weapons, the Pope continues, must needs be subject to the other, of course, and the temporal must obey the spiritual authority. And then, therefore, and then, then that's where you get into the, the business about the, the declaration of, um, of subjection to the, to the Roman pontiff for the sake of uh, salvation. Um, well, clearly, Your Excellency, you didn't you didn't learn uh, you didn't learn your proper lessons as a young American student because every all Americans know that there is a separation between church and state that and, uh, and, one, and, and, one and, cannot and, have power over right. another. And it's most salubrious too. Indeed, it's, it's a marvelous thing. <laughs> As 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 you have it with the laicite in France to this uh, to this very day, indeed. But no, <laughs> isn't interesting, Your Excellency. You describe you describe this uh, declaration of uh, the King of France that he has no sovereign but God. And on this side of history, you know, wouldn't you and I just say, "Il est très français"? Of course, uh, of course, the French would say something like that. But but at this time in history, what a novelty! The beginning, as you you talked about, this is where the seed of Gallicanism is 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 uh, if not uh, planted, uh, begins germination uh, in earnest. But uh, at the time, you know, now we know how the French are, especially in regards to the relation of the church. And I, I'm yeah. sorry if I am burning the ears of any of my French brethren, but it's true. Um, but uh, at the time in history, we couldn't say it was Clefoncey. No, it, it was it was truly an innovation. And this is probably something which is generally unknown to our readership and to the faithful Catholics at large today. That is to say, we would call that Anglicanism. We would say, ah, that's Henry VIII. 
the, the Bishop of Rome hath no power by scripture, da da da, over the King of England. He's the supreme head on earth of the church in England. But no, no, as with everything good and everything bad, it started in France. Look to <laughs> France. The, the, where did the root, where, where lies the root of the rot, Stephen? It lies in France. Being French, they probably dig it up and they prepare it very beautifully in a tasteful dish. And it's a, a subject to somebody's gastronomie. But, uh, oui. <laughs> but, uh, it, no, it comes from France. This, 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 this whole idea. And this, in turn, leads to so many evils. So many, uh, unheard of and un, un, unimagined evils in the social order and against the Catholic Church. So then, um, so then there, 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 there is, the, there is this, uh, this continuing war. Philip, for his part, makes all these horrible accusations. He gets his propaganda machine going. Thank God they didn't have Twitter back then. But whatever his <laughs> means are, he, he accuses, as they always will, he accuses the, the Holy Father of moral uh, depravity. He's accused of being a sodomite and, uh, and, and several other rather unpleasant things. Um, just to dis, a, a simoniacal usurper and, and of being a heretic to boot. And, uh, and Philip, now to his dying day, although he hesitates a bit, he is, uh, he is never going to forget, and he will always desire revenge against, um, against Boniface VIII. So here, um, this, this, is a, this is an era in which, uh, in which the great reforming order of, this, of the Benedictines, the Cistercian branch, was still fresh and young, and indeed the reforming order of the canons, the Norbertines are the, are the canons of Pre-Montre, was also fresh and young, and the Cluniac, Cluniac reform was only about three centuries old. So the, these three great abbots and these three great orders um, refused to sign up uh, to the king's proposal and the condemnation of the pope, and as a result of that, their, um, their uh, abbots are, are imprisoned. Uh, but Philip, what, he's, on a, he's on a tear. He's not satisfied with that. So what happens that he makes an alliance with the Colonus. Who are the Colonus? They are this wretched Roman family that has run Rome and the papacy off and on for centuries. Occasion made, made uh, the papacy in effect into some sort of, um, of a thief uh, that was beholden to some Roman families. And the Roman families would then fight over it. So then occurs this scene, the, and this is the unthinkable thing. Um, the uh, the Holy Father has has retired to Agnani in Italy, which is his hometown, and he knows that the French, with their wretched Italian allies, are after him, and he is seated on his throne, where holding the keys of Peter, uh, holding the, the the papal insignia. And wearing his full vestments, and uh, the French break in to the to, to the throne room, crying out, "Death to the Pope! Vive le roi de France! Long live the King of France!" And um, the Holy Father uh, orders that the doors should be opened to them, and he he awaits like a lamb. His his murderers uh, th- they go up to the throne, they smack him one good slap his face, and then pull off his papal insignia and his vestments and throw him into a dungeon. Uh, this, this was the unthinkable. 
absolutely unthinkable. And he actually, the Holy Father actually says to, to, to them, he says, okay, here's my, here's my neck, here's my head, if you wish to strike the blow. But at this point, the French hesitate. And this scene makes me think very much of the, um, of the kidnapping of Pope Pius the uh, VI by a worthy successor. By Napoleon. Yes, a worthy successor to Philip the Fair, I'm sure you will agree. A man, too, of, uh, of insatiable ambition. And the, remember, I, I came across this story, but the soldier comes in, and the Holy Father is on his throne. It's night, and maybe there's just some candles burning, and he sees this, this Lamb of God all in white. Um, and the, the soldier, whose job it is to pull the Pope off the throne, clap him in, in chains and, and drag him off to France under arrest, hesitates, and he pauses. And later on, he confesses, at that moment, all I could think of was my first Holy Communion, and I couldn't do it. Later on, other soldiers come, and, 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 the, and the dirty deed is done, and he's, and he's hustled off to, uh, to France. But there, there you have that Napoleon, Philip the Fair, France, once again, once again, in this horrible sacrilege against the person of the Pope. Fortunately, Philip hesitates the Colonna, being Italian assassins, wanted just to murder the Pope and be done with it, because that was their usual way of doing business when the papacy gave problems. But Philip hesitated, and in the moment of his hesitation, the, the populace of the town, Vagnani, who were, of course, very loyal to their, their, uh, their, their fellow citizen uh, and, and, and to their pope, they rise up in rebellion and they defend, they spring the pope from prison and the day is saved. But they say that the Holy Father was such a great, great man, never recovered from the blow of the shock of this and, and, and Christendom never recovered from the blow and from the shock of that. Um, so now we're, we're starting, now we're starting the slide. Um, the Catholic order that was set up by Constantine and completed in a sense by, by Charlemagne and been, had been respected really for centuries, the Catholic order that, that lifted the West out of the dark ages that ensued upon the, um, fall of the Roman Empire starts to fall apart, starts to uh, unravel. And, uh, what what a contrast you see here between grandfather and grandson, and what a revolution is now taking place. Uh, we were speaking before the show, Stephen, about the Saint Chapelle and 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 the magnificent legacy that Saint Louis the King left to the French. Yes, indeed, it's it's such a, a beautiful. For those who don't know, Saint Chapelle was was uh, was built to house the relics of our Lord's Passion, which uh, King Louis the Ninth, a saint, being a crusader, was able to to bring back and house. And it's it's it might be the most glorious. Uh, although to be fair, Your Excellency, I haven't been yet to Chartres, and I know some people will uh, oh, will uh, yeah. tell me not to make such a claim. But uh, I, I do think the stained glass in Saint Chapelle stands up quite well to any collection of stained glass. In the world, indeed, for such a indeed, small space, beautiful. it's quite yes. beautiful. Yes, so that's the uh, that that's a, a, rep, a representation in, in the beautiful arts of of decoration for God's glory, representation of what the same King did for civilization itself and for Christendom, and how his his grandson could so far have departed from the, from the legacy that his grandfather and Saint Louis left him and left the French. 
is, uh, is incredible, because this idea of the slapping of the face of Pope Boniface, it marks the end of Christian order. It marks the beginning of the revolution, and it takes us indeed to Pius VI and Napoleon invading the Papal States and uh, carrying the Pope off as a prisoner uh, to France. You know, Your Excellency, as you mentioned, that even within the context of a family, you know, which which the the, the Pope as father to all of us as Christians sure, is a very easy Papa. analog to make. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, even if you did that to your own human natural father, Your Excellency, I mean, apart from, I'm sure some fathers would react differently than others, but even if it was forgiven, it would never be forgotten. And well, uh, there would be there would be damage there, you know, forever. You know, even if if, if the king has France had done penance and sackcloth and ashes, the damage is done. That the window had been broken, and uh, and we it start, was, as you say, the de- the decline. The, the the French actually have a name for it, of course, les majestés. You know, to wound the majesty of the king, and the king is the father of the nation. As, as the Pope is, uh, is is the father of all of Christendom, and it's uh, it's it's a blow from which the father can never recover, and and it's a blow too from which the children of the family can never recover either. So that indeed this is another another setting of the scene for um, <clears throat> what's going to come next. What's going to come next? Uh, the uh, exile of the uh, at Avignon was called the Babylonian captivity of the church during most of the 14th century, from about 1305 to 1380, or 78 rather. And then that leads directly into the Great Western Schism, which lasts for a biblical 40 years after that. And that introduces the way for um, councils uh, to try to solve the problem, like the Council of Baal, the Council of Constance, and the, and the heresy of... Um, Conciliarism um, it leads to a weakened church. Doubt is sown on on every side. Uh, this this whole idea of simony, the buying of church offices, the necessity of of raising money. Each side's got to raise money. The Pope has to raise money to maintain himself in power and to fight off the constant invasions. And if he has to raise money, he has to raise taxes, and then things get kind of worldly. And then he has to borrow money. And once you borrow, you know from whom you're borrowing the money, and that's not good either. You say that all the way through the reign of um, Pius IX, having to do business with the Rothschilds. Um, and all of this has, has an extremely deleterious effect upon upon the church. So the, maybe the next thing to talk and about would your, be... Your Excellency, could I, could I just stop sure. you for a minute there, only insofar as I want to backtrack to conciliarism, I think yes. that that term in our current idiom may mm-hmm. ring untrue. So can you clarify for people who may not know what conciliarism is in this time period? It has nothing to do with Vatican II. <laughs> no, nothing to do with Vatican II, although in, in a sense, I suppose it does, because conciliarism is the heresy which holds that a council has more power than the Pope, to put it in very simple terms of power politics, and that therefore that the Pope himself, under certain circumstances, would have to submit himself to a council. Those who hold with the revolution of the council of Vatican II uh, hold that all of the past papal decrees and uh, all of the teaching of the Church's magisterium since the beginning is now subject 
to this one council, which we know to have been a conciliable, as the French say, a false council, and and, and not possessed of, of any authority in, in the eyes of Almighty God. But that's attempt to solve the Western schism and to make the Pope or the claimants to the papacy submit to the power of, of the bishops meeting in council. Um, you know, Your Excellency, a lot of people look at the Great Western Schism, myself included, as a, a different analog to the current situation instead of a contism. One might say, well, if you could have three popes and not have clarity about who it was, certainly you could have no pope and not have clarity. Do you feel that that it's a fair uh, episode for set of a contest to draw on to to reference the Great Western Schism? Is it a late? Is it a lazy reference? What are the similarities and differences? The uh, I think it's a temptation, and in, in the name of ironicism of sowing some sort of peace and of being a little bit. Um, Oh, a little bit diff- diffident about one's own position and and conciliatory. One could one could point, of course, Vincent uh, Saint Vincent Ferrer or Saint Catherine of Siena, uh, disagreeing with each other about who was a legitimate claimant to this to the throne. Yes, but on the other hand, no, no, and a thousand times no. There's absolutely no connection at all. Why isn't there any connection? Because each one of the men who were claimants to the papal throne were Orthodox Catholics. And more than Orthodox Catholics, they were full of zeal for God, for, for the doctrine of the Church, for the worship of the Church. They were popes. They were, they were worthy churchmen. Some of them may have had their moral faults, doubtless, but they were all Catholics. Everybody professed the same Catholic faith. Today, those who hold with the conciliarists, or we say the Novus Ordo, the Vatican II Church, hold a radically different religion. They are beyond heretics. They are apostates. So how can you say that um, apostasy or heresy is going to raise this ugly head in our assemblies, and it's just a matter of opinion? Oh, that's, that's, the, that's the error of errors, Stephen. And I wish that our Catholic people would, would give it up once and for all. I think those are all excellent points, Your Excellency. And and now that I've paused you on those two uh, on those two issues, um, go ahead and take us forward as to what you'd like to talk about next. So, um, so let's talk about uh, the Babylonian captivity. So we've got the French again, right? And the French are pulling strings, and the French want to have uh, a pope. Uh, under their power, and Philip the Fair, unfortunately, is long lived as well as fair of face, and he is living long enough to um, uh, see the election of Clement the Fifth, who was the first of the Avignon popes in 1308. Poor man, Clement, he meant to do well. He was really a holy man. He was a Dominican, I think, and um, s- suffered during his. Uh, uh, during his reign, which is fairly brief, from uh, terrible cancer, he was in a lot of pain most of the time, and, and the Pope uh, and the Pope suffered as well from pressure from the Pope, from the King rather, the French King, who would wouldn't take any kind of a compromise and wanted the total condemnation of Boniface VIII, which as a heretic, which the Holy Father, of course, refused to give. So this business about moving the Church to Avignon. Uh, Father Fahey makes the point that this compromised the supernatural and the supra-above national unity of the Church. It made the Church to be seen as the plaything of the French monarchs, sort of a French 
as a French corporation, as it were, and no longer universal for all nations and for all people submitting to the kingship of Christ. Um, this is the era, too, because of some of the things that I mentioned about increasing cost, um, raising armies, that sort of thing. This is the era, too, in which the plurality of benefices came to be um, came to be practiced uh, during the, the the glorious Middle Ages. That was never allowed. It was it was viewed properly as as a terrific abuse that a man should hold one churchman should hold two offices that he would be say um, uh, the prebend of Westminster and the Archbishop of Durham. By the time of Cardinal Wolsey. Uh, in the early uh, 16th century, you have uh, you have you have men holding six, eight, ten, twelve different church offices. Why? So that they can get the income from them and maintain themselves in a magnificent lifestyle, and possibly run uh, their own army and, and pay pay their own soldiers for their own political ways. So, what happens to the institutions? What happens to the to the to the chapters of canons and the monasteries and the dioceses? Well, a corruption creeps in because um, uh, he who is he who is not the shepherd, uh, whose own the sheep are not, as our Savior says, take over, and the 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 uh, some agent of the prelate in turn who holds the title and holds the income to these sees. He uh, appoints somebody else, or maybe appoints somebody else, eventually to run it, and then it's run very, very poorly and run into the ground. It's simply a moneymaker for somebody on the top. And this is how the corruption in the monasteries came about. This is how the corruption in the life of the church now in the late Middle Ages came about by this plurality of benefices. Um, then the next stage of degradation is that not only does the church do this, but now the French, once again the French king, he uh, receives uh, the power to name uh, bishops and archbishops and abbots. And this is considered a great prerogative of the great French king, and no one dare question it. So this, of course, cements his power because this is a question of rewarding his friends with uh, with money and, and powerful positions. And, <clears throat> and then this this just uh, <clears throat> accelerates the uh, the collapse, the falling apart of of Catholic life in this day uh, because of because of all the corruption and all the neglect of, of the care of souls. And as though all of this were not bad enough, what happens next? The great schism between the the, uh, the French cardinals and the um, Italian cardinals and the election of uh, with the with the election of Urban the <coughs> sixth. Excuse me, and then. Now, the church for a period of some 40 years is structurally divided, and everybody on both sides is going to need lots of money to be able to, in effect, to start a startup, an ecclesiastical startup. Well, all right, we're the Avignon Dominicans, so we need a place, and we need a chancery, and, and we, need, we need money to be able to, to fund all of this. And, the, and the, the other version of the Dominicans are the Franciscans, or... Um, uh, whatever order you're thinking of, they would need to be able to maintain two, uh, two administrations as well. And then, then for those who actually wanted to take over, there's a question of again armies and soldiers and, and and that sort of thing. And and all of this brings the church into very great disrepute. The everybody still has a faith, more or less, but the charity of many, as our Lord predicted, is is starting to to grow cold, and. Um, 
everything is is becoming a lax and is becoming worldly. And it's this idea that you can buy your way into heaven, what the idea that eventually Luther was to object to, that that had taken hold of Catholic mentality. That 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 that's certainly the case, because the faith was growing cold. In addition to um, all of that, we have to speak about um, going on at the same time uh, the nominalist philo- uh, philosophical error from England. And I want to speak about that separately in a moment, if I may. Uh, along with um, this question of Roman law and the idea of uh, uh, Marsilio of Padua and uh, the promotion of the idea of the, of the kings now as sort of a Roman emperor with absolute with absolute power, um, but we should we should speak about uh, about the um, about about the plague, the Black Death, and the effect that that had on uh, civilization. People could die from with with the black. You you just die within an hour or so. So literally, you never knew if your moment would be your last. But instead of being because of this atmosphere we're talking about now, uh, the unthinkable has become reality. Instead of of that sort of pushing people to le- to prepare themselves for a good and for a holy death, the arteries of Christendom have become hardened. And uh, Hilar Bella calls it. Um, Crystallization, the hardening of, of, of official action in in the life of the church, due to all of these scandals. Um, of course, there was an attack on a practical attack on the celibacy of the clergy. Many of the prelates and even the common parish priests had a mistress or two on the side, and sometimes they say even of the popes that 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 occurred uh, at, at a certain point. And um, the whole idea of we're here to save our souls, folks, and let's uh, let's let's concentrate on the essentials. All of that is lost. It's lost in the love of this world. So the, the Black Death uh, comes in to put its stamp of approval on this kind of a worldly philosophy, even for the common people, because they eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we may very well die. And they believe still in the four last things. They believed in death and judgment and heaven and hell, but their faith had grown cold, so they didn't really care that much about it. Or if they did, as people will, they hedged their bets. They had a little bit of, uh, of each in their, in, their, in their attitudes. And um, they, 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 so then the atmosphere of Catholic life grows, grows very, very lax indeed. Um, the condition of, Bellock says that the condition of the wealthy laity was worse than that of the clergy uh, because of uh, because of the sin of, of avarice. Um, they didn't exalt wealth uh, by means of a specific philosophy, as people will do today, but, but in practice, that's what they did. And there was this hunger for wealth that would lead to the 16th century and to the despoiling of the church and the monasteries, which means the despoiling of the poor, remember, and, and the despoiling of the sick and... Um, of the helpless. Um, that's a little bit about uh, some of the things that the church was facing. Uh, it's not my fort at all, and forgive me if I speak in a very sort of a primitive way here, Stephen, but I can't avoid, we have to say something about philosophy at this point, and we should really have His Excellency Bishop Sanborn, who could just sort of really do it very, very well. But I will do my best to speak about Albion Perfida. Right at this very era, now we're talking about the era of Philip the Fair and, and the start of the French uh, uh, 
captivity of the papacy in Avignon. Now, now there's a friend, comes a Franciscan from who started in Oxford. Interesting. Got to start in Oxford. He is, um, a philosopher and a theologian, some note, philosopher more. William of Ockham is his name, 14th century. He is the father of what we call nominalism. In other words, this is the idea. We don't know things, and we can't know things in their essences, what they really are. All we can do is give names to our common the common experiences of our of daily life, the common experiences of, of our senses, and the the idea of giving names gives the name to this particular philosophical school, which is an error. Uh, nom, nomina is Latin for names, so you can't know the nature of things. What I find fascinating is that there really is a direct link here between this. Um, a false philosophy started with the France, the English Franciscans spread to France and then into uh, and then into Germany, with um, the utter degeneration of 20th century philosophical and theological thought, as represented by evolutionism, pantheism, and uh, Teilhard de Chardin. the The idea is is this that. Um, we can only know individuals. You can't, you can't say anything about the nature of things. And so philosophically, people end up, thinkers end up merging everything into one because there's no, there's no way to think of them as somehow being still distinct because they don't have these philosophical distinctions anymore. And everything is just, is just sort of pantheism. God, in effect, becomes um, absorbed in this world, the French 19th century. Uh, philosopher Renan, uh, says that God is not. God is evolving in the world uh, in the ascending march of the revolution. Modern, modern philosophy, you might say, at its very best or at its very worst. So it's a system that denies the value of, of, of human knowledge or concepts. The concepts are not the true image of reality. They're just, they're just names. So this took hold of scholasticism, and gave, talk about names, gave scholasticism uh, a very bad name. And it leads to this whole modern subjective philosophy, especially the German school, that would have such a deleterious effect upon Catholic thinking in the uh, 20th century. They say that William of Ockham himself may have indeed kept his faith by the pure supernatural virtue of faith, but he did his very best to weaken and to diminish the faith of others um, and, and opens the door to a total, totally rationalistic approach to, to the faith. And uh, Father Fahey stresses how this idea of nominalism really destroys the concept of man's participation as an individual in the, the mystical body of Christ the uh, the Catholic Church, which is charged with this higher mission uh, from from above, a mission which is far more important than that of the nations. Um, so Occam is summoned to Avignon to face the Pope on uh, on charges not concerning his philosophy, but concerning his you might say his political philosophy, who he was backing. And while that is being slowly peracted, he leaves. Uh, France and the and the papal court and slips off into Germany and enters enters into the service of the German Emperor Louis. He's an interesting man. He's influenced by the thought again the subjectivist 
up-to-date uh, secularist thought of uh, of the uh, of the Italian uh, political philosopher Marsilio Marsilio of Padua, and uh, he, the the idea is that the, that the, the the Roman emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, should get rid of the holy. He should be a total Roman emperor, like in the old days of Julius Caesar, like in, as as in the era of of, of the Caesars, and. Um, he becomes then the court philosopher to defend the Emperor Louis and his proposals. The Emperor's son um, commits adultery. He gets himself remarried because it's politically expedient. And um, William of Ockham so prostitutes his, 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 his talents and his presence as a priest, as a philosopher, so as to come up with an elaborate defense of this, as well as a defense of uh, the emperor, now in Rome, getting himself crowned for the first time in the history of Christendom. The emperor is crowned by the Roman patricians. He's no longer crowned by the pope. So you see that, the arm of secularism once again. The emperor, for his part, is delighted with this English Franciscan and all of the assistance that he's rendered to him. And he he makes this interesting little Latin couplet in his honor. He says, Tu me defendas gladio, ego te defendam calamo. Uh, so the, uh, that, that is what, uh, that is how the, um, that is how William of Ockham thanks the, the emperor for his support and defense. You take care of me with your sword and I'll take care of you with my pen. So it's, uh, it's sort of like the kept clergy. That's, that's, that's the idea of it. But a terrible blow to the whole concept of the Thomistic uh, objective order of things. And what this does is to lead the way to Luther. So Luther, for his part, is supposedly discussed with philosophy because it's all this nominalism, but he's, and it's, it's sort of corrupt, and it doesn't really make any sense. You're just wasting your time with it. And Luther, then, because of this idea of division and separation, remember, Occam leads to the rejection of the unity of the human race foreseen by Christ in the mystical body of Christ, the Holy Catholic Church. So now there's a division. Luther becomes the, the man who will, who will sow with his sword this division of a Christian versus citizen, of faith versus good work, and of grace versus nature. And then this idea that nature is essentially somehow corrupt. So... Um, well, thank you for bearing with me on that. Uh, that's that has that all has to be said, and we should try to absorb it a little bit. That that tells us um, how bad things have slipped, how badly things have slipped, and how far in just a relatively short amount of time. In, in, indeed, um, and uh, this is as good a time as any to let those of you who are just joining us know that you are listening to Root of the Rot episode two on the Restoration Radio Network. Um, that avuncular voice you just heard was that of His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. We've been talking about quite a bit today. We've talked about Philip the Fair. We've talked about Boniface VIII. We've talked about Louis IX, Saint-Chapelle. Uh, and in, in, in general, the end of the Catholic order as the world becomes more like itself uh, as it always has been, despite our Lord's numerous forbearances, I would, I suppose the Old Testament, our Lord, and the New Testament, our Lord, uh, has given us many chances. Even in two testaments, he's given us plenty of chances. I'm Stephen Heiner, and we're going to continue on 
our chosen time period today is the years 1274 through 1517, which, of course, that, that year, the, the bookends here are Philip the Fair and Martin Luther. Uh, neither of these are, are very handsome gentlemen uh, spiritually, shall we say. And indeed um, you're, not. You, were talking, you were talking about William of Ockham. Uh, a couple other characters we might want to talk about during this time period would be uh, maybe, if you'd like, the, the origin of the dunce cap. I, I think I heard that from uh, Bishop Dolan's sermon uh, from oh, yeah. St. Gertrude some time ago. And uh, John Huss. Um, uh, it's not fair to mention these men in the same breath. The one was uh, oh, a, a, indeed not saint, no. a saint, but um, but they're both uh, figures that are part of the intellectual movement of this time period, and, and they need to be talked about. Yeah. So um, the, the origin of the Dunce Camp truly is uh, uh, Duns Scotus, who is another English or Scottish, actually a Franciscan. In this case, not not philosopher, but we would say a theologian who. Um, followed um, uh, not the uh, philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, but rather that of St. Bonaventure, who in turn favored Plato and uh, the Greek school. Um, he is, Duns Codis is, is the man who figured out uh, uh, the, the and, and, and proclaimed very, very loudly the, the truth the church had always held, but never as a formally defined dogma yet, of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, the, the Dominicans and uh, the Cistercians, amongst others, were very strong against it. But the English, uh, to their credit, remember England was once the dowry of Mary, the English had always um, held a, a tender belief in the Immaculate Conception and were some of the first to keep the feast day of the Immaculate Conception. So Duns Scotus, they say specifically because he held up the truth of the Immaculate Conception, the Franciscans with him, was then mocked by the others, i.e. the Dominicans, as being, well, we would say today a dunce. So the idea of the, the name dunce comes from Duns Codus, and it was a way of mocking his upholding of the uh, Immaculate Conception of our Blessed Lady. Um, we, we'd have to say, though, Bishop Sanborn likes to say that uh, Duns Codus uh, said uh, the right thing for the wrong reasons, and the Dominicans, it took the Dominicans to be able to figure out the right reasons for, for saying the right thing. And so somehow at some point in, in Catholic history, uh, before the uh, infallible declaration, the proclamation of Pope Pius the, uh, the Ninth, you had a coming together of these two traditions, and the Jesuits, too, made their, made their contribution. But he was mocked for his defense of this, of this great prerogative of our Blessed Lady's uh, Immaculate Conception. So he goes a little bit to the way of, I might say, um, cleaning the, the good name and cleansing the image of the English, uh, the very, very active, they're called Grey Friars, the English Franciscans of that era. Is it true, Your Excellency, that there were there were Dominicans uh, praying before the proclamation of Pius IX that, that His Holiness would not make the proclamation, or is that just uh, Franciscan? <laughs> I, I, I've never I've never heard that. That sounds like an ecclesiastical version of an urban legend. Uh, but but it, but we we have to say, and maybe this here uh, maybe we're touching here, Stephen, on something interesting for our traditional Catholic audience. Uh, if we cannot make a comparison, 
between the uh, the great Western schism and those who recognize one pope and those who recognize another, and today's situation of those who recognize an apostate as a Catholic pope, and then those who claim that, according to Catholic theology, that is utterly impossible. We, 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 we might have to say, at the very least, in very general terms, that that same party spirit, which sometimes burned so uh, so strongly in in Christendom, uh, you see it with the, as I say, the, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Jesuits, and the different controversies say about grace or the American conception and loyalty to one's own school of thought, loyalty to one's own religious order. Um, you get a lot of that in the traditional movement today, including amongst the Sede Vacantes. Personally, I find it very interesting. And I think that we should talk about those things, and we can, we can find consolation in them. There's always that human element. But then, of course, Pius IX, because he was Pope and he was infallible, he settled the issue, and everybody, and everybody submitted, with the exception of the so-called old Catholics, the proto-modernists, who refused to accept either the infallibility or the declaration of Our Lady's um, Immaculate Conception. But there you have it. In the, in the old days, there were these fights and these disputes, and sometimes very bitter, and sometimes maybe a little bit scandalous. I think, I think we, could, we, could, we could certainly say that, Stephen. But I was going to make. Well, I mean, we had those. We had those three Franciscan orders explode out from St. Francis's death. You know, it's just simmering under the surface, getting ready to split out into all these orders, and uh, St. Francis managed to hold those all together. Oh yeah, I mean, I think you certainly would have to say that in the somewhat dissatisfying history of religious orders in the Catholic Church, and by that I mean all of the corruption and the laxity, and then all of the attempts at reform, and then the bitter battles that divided. Uh, talk about, why can't we all just get along and, and get together as traditional Catholics? These bitter battles whereby everyone was divided. The Franciscan order stands out. Personally, I think it's because St. Francis was, was the most, absolutely the most Christ-like of saints, and his ideal that he, that he left for his followers was, was to be like our Lord, which is impossible. Only a saint can do that. And so, um, they, they they immediately the next you know the, his successor right away sunk 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 and then from then on un, until in effect the Vatican II the Franciscans are almost no more there's one or two left in the world maybe uh, they, they, the Franciscans fought about what kind of an observance they they should be having that's a good introduction to today's saint who in turn has something to uh, tell us about the followers of Jan Hus the Bohemian uh, apostate priest and and heretic and would-be church reformer and and he is the saint with whom we began the show Stephen Saint um, um, John Capistrano he um, uh, he's a he's an interesting contrast he's sort of a Joan of Arc type if you will that is to say that he rallied the troops to victory but here Joan of Arc was this beautiful young girl in her purity her maidenhood and an, and an armor of white with the fleur de lis on the on the on the on the banner of France on the sacred heart and um contrasted with this this grisly old friar they say he was just skin and bones because of his fasts and his penances uh and his brown habit was gray and uh, this gaunt figure, nonetheless, did a very, very bold thing. He had, at the request of the Pope, Calixtus II, he raised the uh, the siege of Belgrade. 
Belgrade had been besieged for a long time by the Mohammedans, by the Turks. And he preached a crusade. In effect, he got Hungarian farmers to bring, they had nothing else, so they brought their, their, their farm implements with them, their scythes and their rakes and shovels and things. And they, that, that was the army. And they, uh, they, uh, they were besieged by, um, the Turks for a long time. It wasn't getting any better. He prayed over it. And by divine inspiration, he said, such and such a day, such and such a time, we strike. They struck and they struck victory. They, they, in, in, the, in the holy name of Jesus and of Mary, he was uh, victorious. He, he was also, um, vic- victorious and rather successful in, um, healing some of these terrible splits in the in the church, but specifically amongst the Franciscans. The Franciscans had gone, some of them, after the death of St. Francis, had gone crazy with this idea of poverty. Remember we spoke earlier about this covetousness for money and for property, and how the, the level of Christian life is sinking on the part of the clergy and the part of the laity. Um, so there were those who viewed the owning of property uh, as, a, as a heresy. And they, they claimed to be the true spiritual sons of St. Francis, and they were known as the Fratricelli. And there had been all sorts of investigations of them and condemnations, and they would keep on coming back in time. And he, uh, he opposed them. He worked with St. Um, uh, 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 Bernardine of Siena. He was his teacher, and later on they collaborated in the reform of the Franciscan order. So they, they opposed those who, who went to one extreme, you might say, against property, those who believed that we could somehow be angelic and we wouldn't need to have any roofs over our heads or eat anything. And then they also opposed these two saints together, those on the other extreme who were far more popular and more populous, the very, very lax branch of the Franciscan order, who were extremely worldly and who had no interest at all in even coming vaguely near the ideal of, of holy poverty of St. Francis and um, St. Clair. He, he was a man, uh, John Capistrano, of, of extraordinary energy, did, did so very, very much for the church. And what a glorious thought. While, while this Western schism is going on, and the Babylonian captivity, and the Black Death, is, is more than decimating the clergy. And so many unworthy priests were being ordained because, well, there was no one left to populate the, the, the altars to, to say Mass or give the sacraments to people. So men of very low morals and educational standards were admitted to the priesthood, as today in the traditional movement to a certain degree, uh, in some of these rogue settings, and with the same deleterious effect for this poor divided Christendom that we're facing today. He, um, our saint, did marvels to be able to uh, reanimate Christendom, to be able to convert people, um, and then, of course, to, to, um, to take care of that one thing that you must never forget. While, while, while the Catholics are fighting each other, the, the common enemy is at the gate. And historically, it is only the Pope who has this, not, not, certainly not the French, because the French, as well as the English, but the French more than the English, have betrayed the common cause of Christendom in the face of Protestantism or in the face of Islam more than once in some terrible, terrible way. But you have a great saint like, uh, Saint John Capistrano. He, he, the Holy Ghost raises him up and he seems to be everywhere at once doing good for the, his order, doing good for the restoration of the Catholic social order, and uh, by, by preaching. So he, he goes, he's sent as the inquisitor, 
Holy Inquisitor with great powers into the um, Holy Roman Empire, you know, mostly German speaking. And there in Bohemia, there's been this, there's, there's been this heresy. Uh, the Hussites, they're also known as Utraquists, from the Latin for Utraque, both uh, and both. That is to say that they insisted that the chalice be given to the laity as well as Holy Communion with the Sacred Host. And uh, you see outside their churches in in Prague uh, a chalice. I remember seeing that on the wall. The golden chalice is sort of their symbol. Of course, there were, there's far more to this uh, classic, sort of like a classic Protestant heresy before its time, than just the question of communion under both forms. Um, but Jan Hus went. Uh, Jan Hus uh, did, wanted to tear apart the, the unity of the Catholic faith, and he went from one heresy to another. And our saint went there and boldly confronted him and his followers, and rallied the faithful to orthodoxy, and single-handedly went very, very far towards stamping out this heresy. All of that is the, uh, is the very great legacy of St. Um, John Capistrano. And then later on, at the request of the Pope, he, he preaches, a, he preaches a, um, a crusade, as I mentioned a moment ago, and he raises this, that large, this large army of Hungarian Catholic farmers, which goes to show that the simple people can get together and do something. That's been done in Catholic history. And they save the city of Belgrade, and that, of course, is the origin of our summer feast, August the 6th, the Transfiguration of Our Lord. It was on that day that the victory occurred, and in commemoration of it, uh, the, uh, the Pope uh, uh, established this feast day in, in, in the calendar of the Catholic Church. You know, it's funny, Eric, that I was thinking of uh, that statue of John Hus in Old Town Square in Prague, and he's looking at that church, and it's actually before, uh, before Protestant churches were ugly. You know, it's yes. actually uh, a quite, uh, quite nice-looking church. They, sure. hadn't, they hadn't been heretics for too long. And so no, they, they no. still manage to, uh, uh, to, to, to build nice churches. Now, uh, we continue to talk about isms. You, you said that was going to be our watchword today. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, obviously, we're setting the stage for, for humanism and, and naturalism. And, and I think yes. most of our listeners would, would feel like they know what, that, what those mean, those terms mean. But can you give us a, a little bit more context and, and by defining it, make sure that we actually do know what it means as opposed to thinking we know what it means? Well, humanism uh, is, is distinct and really quite distinct from from naturalism. Humanism, generally speaking, is this desire to re- retrieve the arts, artes humaniores, the more human arts of the ancient times, which would be music and poetry and um, architecture and uh, sculpture and and painting. And to, to revive these, thus putting the emphasis more upon, this is the point of similarity between the two, putting the emphasis more upon man and the, the senses, the sensual, and the here and now, rather than the ethereal, the otherworldly, and pointing to um, eternal life. So um, humanism comes up now during this time. In fact, a great humanist uh, pope, uh, Pius II, Aeneas Piccolomini, he wrote, he wrote about how impressive in his day, he had, he had seen the man, was John uh, Capistrano. It's interesting that those two, yeah, those two men living at the same time and both leaving a very great influence, one for the very good and one for the probably not so good. 
uh, after their after their lifetimes. So humanism, is, uh, literature too, politics, all that tries to put man at at the center of things, and uh, humanism with um, uh, with with the right uh, we would say today with the right caveats with the right with the right warnings and a certain amount of care can be perfectly acceptable. But we see we see the slide. There is a slide, Bishop Sanborn says, towards um, sensualism. Pictorial art becomes more colorful and more realistic and lifelike. Music um, delights the ear more with its harmony. Then, then you have the idea of romance centering in love poetry, uh, which is going to slide down to the impure pretty soon. The development of um, the, the the modern romance, as they're called, romance languages from the language of the Romans, from Latin, and Latin eventually uh, is 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 not for a long time, but eventually will be discarded as the as as, as the common language of the West. Um, and in in all of in uh, philosophy too, and and in theology, and, and in all of these things, the emphasis is man, man at the center of things. Uh, you see an interesting reaction of this, and reaction to the Protestant revolt in uh, Saint Ignatius, and, and the spirituality that he was inspired to promote, which very much puts man at the center of his spiritual life, man examining his soul, his conscience, his beliefs, whereas medieval man puts God and the idea of the adoration of God, contemplation, quies, quietness, in the presence of Almighty God. He puts God in the center. As man now is in the center field, is in the middle of the painting, we don't seem to be able to get him to get him off the canvas one way or another. Uh, so that's a little bit about humanism. Naturalism is the great bugaboo of our time. It's, it's, it's maybe the worst of all of these isms, and it's to be seen everywhere today. Um, especially in the the work of the, what we call the organized forces of naturalism, naturalism holds that man can achieve his purpose perfectly well without any reference outside of himself, without any reference to a super or above natural order, which comes from a being supposedly from above. That is to say, Almighty God. So naturalism see, sees the meaning of life and happiness in life and all of life's needs, all of man's needs, as being somehow just uh, just of, of this world and of this nature. And religion, at very best, is a maybe uh, off on the side. And it's the, it's the forces of naturalism that have wreaked such havoc uh, since, the, um, well, since the French Revolution and, and continue to do so in our day. You know, Your Excellency, as, as you're... As you're explaining this, I, I tend to liken this if we can if we can uh, anthropomorphize our entire discussion today to think about it in terms of the inability of mankind to focus his attention on our Lord. That the yeah. idea is you're, you're you're keeping your eyes focused on the heavens. I think about that time uh, as you are getting ready to consecrate the host and elevati vocali sancelum. Yeah. And, and, you know, we all get tired, and so our eyes drop down and say, oh, well, isn't this beautiful? Well, why don't we look at this a little bit? Oh, yes, there's mm-hmm. a mass going on. So by the same token, uh, we've had these spurts of greatness, uh, and we're, the, the time period you're, you're discussing today with the isms, we're already past that. 
we're already on the downslope. So we can't talk about, I mean, we will have, you know, some battles of the bulge, you could say, where there are some uh, resistances and, and ralliements. But uh, mostly, this is good. the shows are going to get more depressing. The, the episodes are going to get more depressing <laughs> from here on out, right, Your Excellency? Yeah. Uh, because the man, man is unable to keep his focus on our Lord. And, and the reason for that, Stephen, is that, remember, there's a twofold liturgical gesture called, by the, called for by the rubrics for the priest before he consecrates the sacred host. Elevatis Oclis, lifting up his eyes to heaven, but on but with his forefinger and his thumb of, of each hand, he must lightly wipe them against the corporal. Why? So as to detach himself, detach his, his fingers from anything of this world so that uh, they are pure to receive the newborn body of God. So man, he, he, he doesn't manage to be able to perform both of these actions. Either he doesn't, he won't lift up his eyes to heaven, or even if he lifts up his eyes to heaven, this idea of hedging your bets, he won't detach himself from his, the, the little dust or the little dirt, that's the idea of it, of, of this world, to make himself worthy to receive our Lord. That's always the challenge of history. And you're right, it's a downward slope from now on. We've already seen the best. But um, I, I, I'd like to think more that the um, that the that already the the seed of evil was what was, was present this this naturalism and power and power politics and secularism sin Satan in effect has been present from the very beginning of the Christian order um, because I, I think we we talked about this in the last show but we really can't emphasize it enough I mean uh, the the sure the 13th greatest of centuries. But remember that a great saint of the 13th century and a great Franciscan, St. Anthony of Padua, was, uh, uh, was almost, was driven really to distraction by, by the wickedness of the Italian warlords. Talk about Afghan warlords. There were Italian warlords who besieged cities and commit massacres and terrible things. And sometimes he could mollify their wrath and sometimes he could not. And for a saint like that to die at the age of 36 was just a blessing to, to, to be out of this, this wicked, wicked world. And that was during the best of centuries. So, in each century, you have the Dickensian. They were the best of times. They were the worst of times. Um, and each one of our each one of our presentations, God willing, in the future, we'll see some example of that. What we eventually are going to run out of, though, and I and personally, I find this the saddest of all. We're going to run out of the saints. There won't be any saints anymore. There, there are no more saints. Daniel the prophet prophesied that it's one of the Lenten masses. Yamnona uh, Sanctus. Not no, no, there's there's no more saint. No saints left. Maybe since the death of Padre Pio, I don't know. Um, and how sad that is, because with all the problems of this root of the rot during the two centuries we have spoken of today, you had you had not just one saint, but many, many, many saints, and they were still so bad. And, and and Christendom still continued to slide down the slippery slope uh, towards all of these isms. What is to be said of our day in which God and his justice has abandoned us to our own sin, the church is eclipsed, and there are no more saints anymore? Well, the consolation would have to be to know the lives of the saints, to know Catholic history, and to understand what has happened and why, which, of course, is uh, the idea of, of these programs. Well, Your Excellency, in, in light of that, and to take some solace in, in some good things, 
I thought we might uh, backtrack a little bit to uh, Cito and Premontré and talk mm-hmm. about the Cistercians and the Norbert teams, two orders who've had an effect uh, in our lives individually and yeah. uh, mine through the, uh, the Hungarian Cistercians at the University of Dallas who oh, taught me uh, in my, in my younger years, you, uh, mm-hmm. I think in, uh, in Wisconsin. And then uh, yeah. of course, the Norbertines in California who were a big part of, uh, of implanting a deep love of the liturgy uh, within me, uh, albeit for the denuded Novus Ordo liturgy. Um, mm-hmm. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the Cistercians and the pre-monster tensions or the Norbertines as they are more uh, easily known? Uh, so that our uh, our audience can get an appreciation for these, as, you know, as they were great flowers in our Lord's garden of religious orders. Uh, they were, and as you say, there, it would seem that at, at the very end that uh, there was a, a little sort of sometimes plants bloom in the in the fall by mistake, and so there there were some sort of in the autumn of the church's life. It seems that there, that there were, there were there were some blooms to be to be gathered, some blossoms still. In the in the seventies, which is in the eighties, which is a remarkable thought, but the, the Cistercian order came upon the heels of the um, of the great Gregorian reform, Gregory uh, uh, Gregory the Eighth and his um, and his battle against uh, the the Roman Emperor Frederick Bar- Barbarossa, um, and. Uh, and won so much in the way of good for the church, and then his ally in that, because he was a, a, a Benedictine, and the Cluniac Benedictines were his allies in that, which organized the monastic life by one common order and head and rule, as opposed to each monastery being independent in and of itself, which is the way St. Benedict envisaged that the Benedictines should uh, should live and should be governed. So... Um, but there was always this. There was always this pull the, because um, the, the the wealthy lords would grant property to the monks, and then they would come to visit the monks, and then they would have to be entertained, and then there would be a certain amount of worldliness and politics that would enter in, and then the life of the monks, because of this contact, would go down. So you had the the, the founders of the Cistercian order desiring to get away from all of this, in effect, get away from all of this compromise and seek God and God alone. You see the same thing with the Carthusians and the, the Camalgelis. It was this God alone to get away from the world and property and power and ease and follow in all of its simple purity the holy rule of St. Benedict. That was the, the genius of the, of the, of the Cistercian order. Um, and, but in the history of the orders, you always see um, one one order uh, affecting another order, and you also see some sort of an eventual change because of the effects that come about. So, uh, to speak for a moment about about the effect, the uh, the order of the High Middle Ages of the Church's glorious era was no question about it was the Cistercian order. They say that the who are the um, who are the Dominicans except friars of Citeaux? And that's why they wore a white habit in, under the influence of the Cistercians, uh, and just because they were part of that, part of that world, really, in, in their own way with their own life, but it, they were influenced by the Cistercians. And the, the Norbertines were, they were canons. Canons are priests who lived together in a monastery, 
usually they follow the rule of St. Augustine, and they chant at the Divine Office, because that's what a can, you might say, does for a living, and then studies and prayer and, and works of charity after that, uh, in, in the context of a community life. Well, the um, the the Premonstre Tension Cans, Premontre, Bishop Sanford and I visited it a number of years ago uh, in northern France, and it's, uh, it's a little place which is now a mental hospital, unfortunately. The government took it over at the revolution, and today it stands like a permanent uh, assault against the, the glories of, of Premontre, that it should be, it should be a, a mental hospital. Um, but the, the canons uh, in, in their form of life, that goes back to St. Augustine, well, they were reformed in the in the Cistercian spirit by a good friend of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, the great Cistercian, and he was Saint Norbert, and and they were the white canons. They also wore white. This idea of the of the the influence of of the uh, of the Cistercians, and there are even some branches or, or, or other groups of Benedictines who um, wore a white habit too, and 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 participated in the, the strictness of that of that reform. So these. Uh, these 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 orders and these monasteries, which had a, a central government as opposed to a, a purely local government uh, before the Cluniac reform, uh, they were the um, the backbone, you might say, of the church in the high Middle Ages, the maintaining of all of these of all of these standards. But what happened with the Cistercians, particularly in England, is interesting because they were such hard-working monks. They were tremendously successful materially uh they they cornered the uh the sheep the mutton market very wool the wool market in particular very early on in in england and god blessed them in their prosperity but then the prosperity always leads to a slide uh the, the lessening of the high ideals of the order especially the lessening of the ideal of poverty which of course they had in common with the early franciscans and then it makes these monasteries, which now are very fat and wealthy and big and powerful, it makes them to be eyed with uh, envy, covetousness by the secular lords in, in England. Uh, it would be Henry VIII. Later on, you see the same thing with the, uh, the, the German uh, Protestant revolt in the Holy Roman Empire in Germany and Austria. The, the same idea over the centuries. So, in, in a way, the, the success of the order brings about its own its own destruction in time. But there were little bits of it left. And um, you and I both knew uh, some of the Hungarian uh, Norbertine fathers and the Hungarian uh, Cistercian fathers, who maybe because they came from Hungary and they had suffered so very much under the communists, were um, to a certain degree uh, right thinkers. And they resisted to a certain degree, and for, for a while at least, the, the coming of the revolution, and maybe that was a way in which the uh, somehow the the, uh, the torch was passed on. I remember um, visiting the tomb of Saint Norbert in Prague, and having read about over the years the the horrible communist show trials in which the Cistercians and the Norbertines in particular were all lined up in their religious habits and made to confess to all sorts of outrageous crimes against the state and then all thrown into prison. And of course, the monasteries were taken over and put to secular uses. And um, I remember visiting the tomb of St. Norbert and the uh, the order then was, was just recently in possession of the monastery after the fall of communism. And um, the, the tomb of St. Norbert is beautiful, covered in silver. And there were many young monks, obviously Novus Ordo, Norbertines, but still it was a little bit the sense of, and the bells were ringing, and it was the sense of a little bit of a feeling of triumph, because seemingly 
They had survived and they had overcome. And yet, on the other hand, of course, they hadn't at all, because a far greater enemy had already conquered them, greater enemy than communism, that is to say, conservatism or the Vatican II Church, and they were all of them uh, members of that, and I'm afraid they have very, very little, except some form of high churchism to show for that today. But still, yes, I think many Catholics uh, have, in the United States at least have occasion to be grateful to some of the Hungarian religious of these orders who kept a little bit, some sparks of the light of the faith uh, burning. And uh, and we're very grateful for that, of course. Oh, yes, um, indeed. Your Excellency, we've we've covered quite a bit today, and uh, you know it's hard to to cover a couple centuries and and a little over an hour. Um, before I let you go today, are there any other things you'd like to kind of pick up and clean up around the edges before I, I let you get back to your day? Well, uh, as, as you know, Stephen, my style is somewhat messy, so I, I'm not going to attempt too, too profound of a cleanup. However, if I may impose upon you and our potential audience, I would like to conclude my contribution today by reading to you a little something from um, uh, Cardinal Schuster's notice or his uh, writings about St. John Capistran. He was a, a Benedictine. Uh, a great Benedictine abbot, and later on, Cardinal Archbishop of, of Milan, Ildefonso Schuster. They say, it's interesting, they say that he was uh, investigated for modernism. I suppose many were. But he was a man who died in the odor of piety, and the the, uh, the little reflection with which he concludes his brief life of um, of uh, Saint John Capistrano is very much to the point of what we've been what we've been speaking about today. He says, formerly it was the power of Islam which threatened the Christian polity. Now, instead, the danger comes from the Jews, a people which has no country and which therefore hates the fatherland of others, allied as it is with Freemasonry. Jews and Freemasons together make war on Catholicism and on Europe. And their attack is all the more dangerous and difficult to meet by reason of its secrecy. These words were written maybe in the 1920s, sometime after World War I. Against this tremendous peril, we must have recourse to the invincible power of prayer. And as we are not allowed to hate anyone, but are rather commanded to love all men, even our enemies, let us on this day pray for the conversion of all these erring souls, especially those who let loose the terrible scourge of a war from which they alone reaped anything of advantage. He means World War I. So that all may be brought to repentance, ecclesia tranquilla devotione laetator. The church may rejoice with the tranquil devotion. O wondrous right hand of the Most High, in order to accomplish great marvels, he uses the choice of the humblest instruments, sometimes even those that appear the least efficient and the most despised by men, that the result may not be attributed to the creature, but to the creator alone. Thus, in the 15th century, when the humanist influence was strongest and the Christian powers themselves, instead of listening to the voice of the supreme pastor and joining forces against the crescent, that's the symbol of Islam, which was threatening to overpower the liberties of the civilized world, were intriguing subtly against each other. God raised up a poor son of St. Francis of Assisi, who emaciated, barefoot, 
lacking all earthly resources, aroused half of Europe by his fiery words and led her to victory under the walls of Belgrade. Digitus Dei est ic, the finger of God, the Holy Ghost, is here. Well, Your Excellency, I don't really think I can add anything more to that. I think that's a great place for us to, to end our, our lesson today. Um, it is. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, if you've enjoyed this time with uh, His Excellency, uh, or if you have any follow-up questions on anything His uh, Excellency wrote, feel free to send a thank you note or follow-up questions to rootoftherot at truerestoration.org. Again, rootoftherot at truerestoration.org. For any uh, thank, thank you notes, uh, ways that you can contribute to His Excellency's work, and uh, any follow-up questions on today's episode. His Excellency and I will return on the Feast of St. Mark uh, next month, uh, April the 25th. As usual, Root of the Rot occurs on the uh, fourth uh, Friday of the month. So your Excellency will be, will be safely, shall I say safely, or, uh, or happily out of Lent, uh, dare I say <laughs> that uh, uh, some of us uh, are looking forward to uh, regular meals again. Uh, it's one of those things that you don't want to admit to yourself. I, I think I told Father McKenna the other day we were getting ready for uh, an episode, and I he'd asked me how I was doing, and I said I'm trying very hard not to uh, not to admit that my main meal is the highlight of my day. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the old man. Well, you 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 and we and I both we need our we need our Lent. Truly, Lent is, uh, and, and for us in this wasteland of modern life, it's it's truly is the best of times. And I, I sincerely say I hate to see Lent end. It's, it truly is the best. Our Lents are not very good, but it's it's the very best that we have in the course of the year. And and, and to your and to one of your comments today, your Excellency, it might be the last Lent that we have, so we might as well make use of it. Indeed, indeed, let us let us let us fast generously and uh, and and well, because this could indeed be our very last Lent until so the eternal could, uh, banquet invert, of heaven. <laughs> I was going to say, yes, we might invert the the previous saying is uh, uh, fast well and uh, and be uh, be, be circumspect for <laughs> right, yeah yes, for yes. tomorrow you may die. For tomorrow, uh, that and uh, that is the Catholic attitude towards life. Truly, it is along with the other two. Along because because there there's no no contradiction in the in the wonderful Catholic cycle and order of things between fast and feast. There's just a time for everything in in, in God's design. Next time we'll be covering uh, the years 1517 through 1648, uh, and um, and His Excellency and I will continue to cover unfor- the unfortunate decline uh, of of uh, the West. But uh, we will as uh, as mentioning some of our great saints today his excellency will cover some of the the lights as well as always your excellency thank you so much for your time you're very welcome god bless you and god bless our audience goodbye thank you if uh um enjoyed uh listening to his excellency i really strongly suggest that you uh to take the time to to send him a note All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. 
Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or simply even an Ave for our work the next time that you pray. If you have any questions or comments or would like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.